It's 4 o'clock on a Tuesday, and you know what that means, don't you? You're just in time for a special edition of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! Hello, everybody. How are you guys? Good to see you. Let me get this window open, make sure that we are streaming. There we are. Okay, we are good to go in that regard. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm very excited today because we've got a friend of mine named Chris Bosshausen who is... Well, he's going into space a week from now. <laughs> That's the short way to put it. Uh, and I don't think many of us, if any of us, have friends that get to go to outer space. Um, as I said in my email the other day, there are 7.6 billion people on Earth, but only a handful of regular citizens have ever been invited to go to space and only one taxi member. Um, I regret to say that half an hour ago when I launched Wirecast to do the show, uh, something is wrong and the thing that connects outside people to me is not working so I've got Chris on the phone hello Chris how are you hey Michael how's it going good you scared me when there was a pause when I said how you doing it's like oh no that's not working either anyway so as you guys can see um, I've got a window open with a, a shot of Chris in the famous vomit comet uh, being a true musician he brought an instrument with him he's playing his guitar um, so next Tuesday, October 12th, Chris is going to join, uh, you know, just how many people is it now? Like, it's like under 10 people, right, that are not astronaut trained that have been in space? Just under 20, yeah. I'll be under in 20. like, okay. uh, yeah, like number 16 or 17. Wow. A very, very, very small and exclusive club. Um, he's going to get there on Blue Origin's New Shepard spacecraft along with three other passengers, one of whom is none other than Captain Kirk himself, also known as William Shatner. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So I met Chris four or five years ago. He's a taxi member um, and, and, you know, clearly a musician. Um, and space dominated our conversation. He wanted to talk more about music. I wanted to talk more about space when I found out what his background was. Um, every now and then, yeah, I'd let him talk about music, but definitely more fascinated with his career. So he's a passionate music creator, a space junkie, and one of the coolest nerds you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. Here's a little background on him, just so you know who we're talking to today. Chris received his PhD in physics with honors for, uh, and a bachelor, I'm guessing a BSc is bachelor in science and physics uh, and mathematics, That's both, right. both from the University of Sydney. See, I'm not smart enough to, I only have to guess at that stuff. I only got an undergrad degree. Um, Chris was previously, get ready for this, a space mission architect at NASA Ames Research Center. After working on a number of traditional space spacecraft programs at NASA, he co-created PhoneSat, a spacecraft built solely out of a regular smartphone, which hopefully works better than Wirecast is working today. While at NASA, Chris also established Singularity University, a school for studying the consequences of accelerating technological development. I think Facebook found out about that yesterday. Initially fulfilling the role of interim director, Chris helped raise over $2.5 million to establish the university assembled the uh, faculty and served as co-chair for the university's Department of Space and Sciences. Chris was also the co-founder of Planet Labs, um, a company providing unprecedented daily global mapping of our challenging planet from, or changing planet from space. As the company's chief technical officer for five years, he took the company from the drawing board to having launched more satellites into space than any other company in history. I'm going to repeat that because it's really important. More satellites launched into space by Chris and his gang at Planet Labs than any other company in the history of the world, completely transforming the space industry along the way. So now that you know all that, hello again, Chris. How are you? Michael, great to, to be here today. It's always nice to catch up. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I'm sorry we can't do it in the form of video chat, but... Uh, you know, like I said, better that it was the video chat rather than your rocket. Um, so anyway, uh, let me get to my questions here. Okay, so I think all of us from my generation, uh, and I'm older than you, were obsessed with space because we got to watch Alan Shepard go up and John Glenn go up. We got the day off of school when astronauts landed on the moon. Um, but you're younger than me, and your generation not as obsessed with space, but were you obsessed with space as a kid? 
Yeah, I was. I always have been. Um, I don't know what happened, but it's just been a permanent part of my my being, I guess, <laughs> as long as I can remember. Uh, did you know at an early age that you wanted to go up into space at some point in your life? Was that a thing for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's funny because I, I, it's not like I thought it was difficult. I just was just thought it was strange we didn't do that. It just seems really natural to me. <laughs> Well, it's going to be a lot more natural for you in a week. Um, was your family supportive of your passion for space? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think they, you know, I just wear it on my sleeve, you know, and so they. it just seems, again, natural to them that I finally got there. And, you know, my mom was wonderful. Um, you know, I like to say my mom is all-wise and all-knowing. And so when I, even when I first told her I was coming to the U.S. to work at NASA, all she said was, it's about time. Wow. So it sounds like your mom might be Yoda, <laughs> all wise, all knowing. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, do really smart people run in your uh, family gene pool? Yeah, definitely. Um, my mom actually, um, you know, she had a family quite early in life, so she ended up doing her school backwards and uh, got to college just a year before me, and then actually became a chemist. Um, you know, once the, the children were out of the house, went and started a career as a chemist. Wow. That's pretty cool and a great role model for me. Yeah, see, in my family, we hope that my four daughters all marry people smarter than us so that we can improve the gene pool. You got lucky and were born into it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't um, heard that one before. <laughs> well, we joke about it. One of my daughters is, is, has a serious relationship with a guy now who is you know, definitely like genius IQ for real and, and does some incredible stuff. And we always joke that he's going to improve the gene pool should they get married. Um, so I know that you uh, have a PhD in physics and math and that you worked at NASA as a mission architect. Can you tell us a little bit about what exactly a mission architect does at, at NASA? Yeah, I was actually quite lucky. And I, I got, um, the NASA has about 10 centers around the United States. And one of them's in Northern California, just south of San Francisco. So I ended up basically being in the middle of Silicon Valley, um, right next to Google, but working at NASA. And wow. so what we were trying to do then was bring some of the, my job was basically to try and bring some of the innovation from the tech world back into NASA. Because as you said, like NASA was a pioneer in the 50s and 60s. And it, it did so well at that, it's still one of the best brands around the world. It's, it's, you know, it stands for something really important. But if you look at like even the phone in your pocket, a lot of innovations happening in other companies, in other areas. And so we were trying to bring some of those lessons back into NASA and say, how can we get better at what we do, getting, making use of the really cool things that have been invented elsewhere. It's a really fun job. Um, and, and I kind of remember you telling me years ago that at some point you kind of walked into a, a meeting in a conference room and held up a phone and said, why don't we just put that into space? Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah, it's just that the, the original idea was a, a, a guy uh, named Pete Klupa, who was uh, the director of engineering at NASA Ames. And I think it wasn't even then, it wasn't even a smartphone. This was just in the weeks before the first iPhone came out. And he would walk around waving his government-issued BlackBerry. It was a BlackBerry or Palm Pilot, one of those two. And even wave that around and go, my phone is smarter than your satellite. And that was his mantra. And wow. after hearing him say this for about a year, we finally decided to take him seriously. And uh, we put one of the first Google Android phones in orbit. Uh, actually, it was the Nexus 1 phone. We put it in orbit and, and pretended that it was an entire satellite. And it actually worked. And was your theory that, I mean, we spend typically, I'm guessing, like a few hundred million, maybe a half a billion or a billion dollars on a really beefy satellite that's like the size of a car. And with all yeah, this the, new technology that we could do it smaller and cheaper, therefore having more of them in space at one time? Yeah, I like to joke that a satellite is really like a box of boxes. And so, you know, if you put in you know, a uh, radio that's the size of a toaster and a computer that's the size of a PC, you know, desktop tower from the 1990s and you, you know, you, you put in a control system that's the size of a gearbox, your satellite ends up being pretty big and pretty heavy and, and expensive. But all that stuff is in a phone. It's already there and it's tiny, it's miniaturized. And so that was the lesson we, we took, which is, you know, there's really cool microscopic stuff out there that actually is cheaper and better 
Because yeah. um, NASA, you know, NASA doesn't want their rockets to blow up, right? They don't want their satellites to fail if they spend a billion dollars. They want to fly stuff that they've flown before because they knew it worked. So they actually fly pretty old stuff sometimes. Yeah, well, I would think that it would be a lot less expensive to lose a CubeSat that's, you know, roughly the size of a shoebox or a bread box or something um, than it would be to lose something that's the size of a, an automobile. So I would think that they would have been doing cartwheels like, hey, guys, great idea, but not so much, huh? Yeah, a lot of my work was really on um, winning the hearts and minds battle around that topic. So if you spend a billion dollars on a satellite, you're probably going to want to spend another billion just to make sure it works. And so <laughs> one billion becomes four pretty quickly. Um, and when you can relax a little bit and go, you know what, I my satellite was the price of a Honda Civic and I can <laughs> afford to fly five of them. And if only four work, that's okay. So I'll just fly one more than I need. That's a different way to get to the same result. Um, and that's kind of what we ended up pioneering was was lower cost satellites that were higher risk, but by not getting paranoid about them, we could just build them cheaper and quicker and launch them and they work fine anyway. So how many of those, I guess you call them like micro satellites, um, do you guys have in space? Planet Labs, I know, is the world leader and has by far the most satellites up there. Do you know what the actual count is as of today? Yes, so uh, Planet's launched 452 as of today, wow. um, and there's about another, I think another 42 or 48 happening in another launch in a few weeks. Um, but unfortunately, in the last couple of months, um, SpaceX overtook our record. Um, so we're oh, now number kidding. two. Yeah, but SpaceX now has beaten us um, because they've been launching, you know, 60 of their Starlink satellites a week oh, at the moment. Right. So. We lost our record, but you know, that's what happens with records. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think that for a while, well, but well, SpaceX and then Planet Labs are basically the two biggest corporate superpowers in the world. We have more satellites than almost every other country combined. Um, so it's pretty interesting how space has become more accessible to everyone, not just governments. And are the SpaceX satellites also microsatellites? I think those are a little bigger. Um, I don't quite know the exact size, but um, they're kind of these weird flat things that are kind of, I think, maybe for an example, the size of like a keyboard road case. I think they're about that big. Okay. Um, interesting. So I'm trying to catch up with my own notes here. Um, all right. So how did that career, you were a co-founder of Planet Labs. You were there for years. I met you, uh, you're still a shareholder, I believe, still a partner, um, and now you're a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, yet another interesting turn of careers. But you're so passionate about music. It's like sometimes I would chuckle to myself. I remember you and I had lunch in Santa Monica with a friend of yours one day, and out of all the subjects that we talked about, every time you talked about music, your face changed shapes. Uh, you, were, you would literally like light up whenever you talked about music. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you, well, how you spend your time now as a venture capitalist. You know, I'm guessing that you're working uh, easily 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours a week. It's one of those jobs. It's not nine to five. But how do you find the time to do your music with all the stuff you've got going on in your life? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a lot of material there. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the VC jobs are really fun because you know my old NASA mission architect job was to try and stimulate thinking and get people trying new ideas. So I just love visiting startup companies and finding people who are innovating. And um, you know I love to roll up my sleeves and get on the whiteboard. I'm actually a bad investor because I really still act like an engineer. Um, so I'll uh, jump on the whiteboard and I'll help them solve some problems. And if I think, you know, their company has, uh, um, you know, the potential to really make a positive difference in the world, then, yeah, I love to sort of we bring it back and take a look at it at work and sometimes invest in them. So that's like a really fun part of my life. Um, and then the music thing, it's a little different because the the VC work is very internal, right? I mean, I'm, I'm there. It's almost like being a coach or a mentor. I'm they're working with a small group of people, helping them build their thing. But music, you know, is an outward facing thing where you can reach people. And I think 
for me, it's always been about just trying to connect people and heal the world through being con- through connectedness. That's sort of the music is sort of my yin and yang part of my life, I guess. Um, at what age did you become a musician? Um, probably I had sort of a really strange path to being a musician. Um, it never once occurred to me when I was a child to get an instrument. Um, what actually happened was um, I fell in love with computer game music. And so back in the <laughs> mid 80s, early 90s, my neighbors had computers. We didn't even have one at the time. I go over and play computer games, and I just fell in love with computer game music. You and mean like so like chip tune music, like chip chip tunes on the Commodore sixty four? Wow, you know, those lovely little four track stereo pan Beatles style digital things. You know, only yeah. four channels. <laughs> um, and so I would try and program those, and just fell in love with computer music. So then I learned MIDI. Um, eventually at school we got a, an Atari ST so I was writing MIDI compositions on the Atari and then finally got my hands on a Commodore Amiga which was the creme de la creme of um, audio quality back in those days long before Sound Blaster sound cards came along um, you know, the Amiga had just amazing audio so I made um, I don't know if anyone remembers mod trackers and 4 channel or 8 channel had this program called Octomed that gave me 8 channels of samples wow um, <laughs> and so I would work on like reverse engineering songs, like trying to make what I call them, like remakes, um, essentially covers of songs, um, but on you know in the sequencer. And it wasn't until like maybe a couple of years ago I looked back on it. I'm like, why didn't I get a guitar? <laughs> Something like that. Because but, it probably wasn't mathematical enough or scientific enough for the way your brain is wired. It was like too analog, maybe. Yeah, but eventually, actually, Mum did buy me a guitar for Christmas one year. I got a beautiful white um, Fender Squire that nice. um, that looks uh, exactly like um, one of the Strats that that um, David Gilmore plays. And nice, I just love that thing. So, um, yeah, and you probably got to meet a lot more girls once you picked up the guitar because you know, like video game music and eight tracks of samples, not that sexy. Just saying. Um, yeah, no, arguably I was being a musician, but to be honest, during like lunchtime at school, um, I wasn't in the cafeteria or out in the playground. I was literally in the computer rooms. <laughs> so, yeah, it didn't help. <laughs> um, how old were you when you first had the thought, gee, well, maybe I could write my own song? Uh, we tried in, in, um, in high school. We actually had a band. I don't know if this band name exists, but it should. Um, we, we wanted to be a heavy metal band, and we thought, well, what's the heaviest metal? Again, being a scientist, I was like, well, that would be uranium. <laughs> so we literally had a heavy metal band called Uranium, and our tagline was the heaviest metal. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> It's pretty good marketing, actually. Yeah, and I, I designed all the logos and T-shirts for it, and, um, and then, uh, you know, high school... Being high school, we did like six rehearsals before the whole thing fell apart. Um, but that was fun. Um, yeah, and then when I first, uh, when I finally got to college, I bought my first computer in second year of college, just to show you like what era I was in the tech technology evolution. Um, I didn't get a computer till second year of college, and I actually spec'd it out for digital audio recording, and so I actually built a door then. Um, got my first microphone and headphones that I still have and a mixer, eight channel mixer and uh, an eight channel sound card and set up a studio in my um, apartment. It was my very first act when I bought a computer. But the studio you have now is more sophisticated, I'm guessing, but you kept that stuff just because you you have a a warm spot in your heart for it? Well, the mic actually works really well on my voice, so I like it. Um, Yeah. And and then the headphones are indestructible. They're a pair of AKGs and uh, I've now got... 20 years on them and I had to replace the foam pads about a month ago because they, they <laughs> melted um, but other than that it's in amazing condition so I thought be nothing wrong with this hardware so yeah but the rest of the studio is all, all new stuff uh, and what's your favorite type of music to compose I've been on a synthwave binge one of the cool things about taking a break from music is you know sometimes people hear music and they're a little bit behind the wave. They like something on the radio and they start playing it and then recording it. So I did that, but then I didn't release it for 20 years. So when things like synthwave and 80s pop stuff came back, or even trance, which is having a bit of a resurgence, I have a whole catalog of that stuff that I've been sitting on Sweet. for 20 years. 
Um, wow, I should ask one of the publishers we work with that does vintage music primarily uh, if they need any of that stuff. Um, I'll ask <laughs> and once you're safely back on terra firma, uh, if they need it, I'll connect you with them. Um, yes. So one one trick to being modern is just uh, wait eighteen years till you're in front of the next cycle instead of behind it. <laughs> a little bit for people. <laughs> That's great if you don't start at sixty. Um, <laughs> you know, people often used to ask me, "Why do record labels want young people all the time? Why won't they sign you know like a fifty-year-old?" And one is they couldn't handle the rigors of touring, and number two, they're looking for longevity of career. You know, but you're right; everything old becomes new again. That's there's no question about that. Um, Looking at my questions here, so going back to space for a second, um, I know you. I mean, I, I know you're very perseverant. You're somebody who gets an idea and you don't give up, and you didn't give up on getting this ride into space. So, can you tell us the story about? I mean, come on, we're talking what four people going up uh, a week from today? How did you become one of the four? Did they just like look in the yellow pages and go, oh, here's a guy that's really into space. Let's invite him. Yeah, no, I think you hit it on the head. It's perseverance. Um, I knew it was something I wanted to do. And I actually, about four years ago, because um, I, I go to various space industry events, um, in distinct, basically the, the space version of the Taxi Road Rally. Okay. Um, and I've been going to those for years. So I'd meet, you know, some of my friends and colleagues from the space circuit, many of whom work at Blue Origin. I'd say, hey, when are you flying? Can I join up? And they're like, oh, we can't really tell you that. And so I, I think about four years ago, I gave them a proposal for shooting a music video in space. Um, and they were like, cool, thanks. Uh, yeah, great. We'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> and I didn't think I would ever hear from them. And then in March, they actually called and they said, just wanted to let you know that our founder Jeff Bezos will be flying on July 20. Um, would you like to go after him? And I said yes. <laughs> so the rest wow. is history. That's incredible. I mean, literally. I mean, you didn't pester them, but you were persistent, and you actually sent me a piece of music that you composed along with some prose that were read by who's the gentleman's whose voice is on this. You must be talking about Stephen Fry. Yeah, the the guy who sounds kind of like Richard Attenborough. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and play this for everybody just because it gives them a little taste of, of your music. Um, and it's appropriately, uh, I don't know, it's not space music, but... Um, when I first, I've heard it now three times, and when I first heard it, it made me feel like dawning of a new age kind of thing. You know, it's like, wow, this is really appropriate. So, uh, and what's the title of it? It's called One by One. All right, let's have a listen. This piece I call space the uh, silent space. has always been present. The stars shine down on us as they did on our ancestors, inspiring generation upon generation with their dazzling and perplexing brilliance. The planets revealed to the ancients the clockwork of the cosmos. The moon brightened our nights with its light and waited patiently for us to reach out. Space begins a mere 60 miles above us, but for most of human existence, it remained tantalizingly out of reach. Sixty years ago, we opened a doorway to the skies and ascended on fiery engines proudly into orbit and began the space age. Professional astronauts braving the unknown piloted 
primitive spacecraft into orbit. 24 humans flew to the moon. 12 walked on the moon's silent gray surface. Their presence was the culmination of a convulsive collective effort. Citizens of countries locked in a cold war met in the cold of space and shook hands. The International Space Station is the greatest peacetime mobilization in history. The Great Pyramid of our day, the Chartres Cathedral. But the more extraordinary, because it is a triumphant monument to science and to what we, as a species, can accomplish when we have the will. Sixty years into our journey, something magical is happening again. The door opened by the first astronauts is opening a little wider. What used to take an entire country can now be done by a small team. And ordinary citizens are lifting off into space. The prior half-century of progress is playing out again in front of us, but this time, the characters are you and me. first citizens have lifted into orbit by the time you hear these words. Now it's just a few, a few very rich ones, but we will get better at democratic spaceflight and more will go. One day, quite soon, entire generations will look down on the Earth and, as the first astronauts did, fall in love again with our great blue planet one by one, one by one, with new clarity, with their sight undimmed by the atmosphere, some of them will look out to the stars and decide to set out further, starting a new chapter in our history. Space is only 60 miles up. you want to go? Very, very cool. Great job on that. Um, your uh, copywriting is great. The music is great. And your post-production shop's pretty impressive for somebody who doesn't do it for a living. Good job. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I had some help on the mixing. Um, so there's a, a guy named Bill Simpkins who has an awesome studio up in um, up in Bellingham in, in Washington State who he has an entire studio, basically all analog gear. Um, so we went up and did the, the mixing and, and post up there. Well, it sounds great. Um, and Stephen Fry's voice is like incredible sounding. Um, I don't know if I ever discussed this with you, not that this show is about me, it's about you, but I used to do a ton of audio posts at a very high level in New York and got to work with the absolute top of the top voiceover announcers every day. And uh, yeah, Stephen Fry, never worked with him, but man, what a voice. And, and his read was really good. Um, okay, so let's go back to space. Excuse me for a moment. Um, oh, and by the way, how is that piece involved in the project i mean do you get to broadcast it from up there or are you going to be you're probably not going to be up there long enough to actually broadcast it are you yeah no i mean i think the the lyrics that the little piece of narrative that that stephen reads for me was an encapsulation of why i'm flying why i think this is important um i know a lot of people have said that this is just tourism or joy rides but i really truly believe it's the beginning of a new chapter for the human race and we can't even imagine what that's going to bring but i wanted to put all of that in words and and, and music 
Um, so it's just a really just a truthful expression of what I think this moment is about. Well, it's a really good expression, and I've got to agree with you on that. When I was a kid, totally fascinated by watching Alan Shepard and, and John Glenn, um, the only way, the only reference that any of us kids who were obsessed with space back then could really have is, oh, I'm never going to get to do this because I would have to go through all this incredible training and, and you know, I'm not a fighter jet pilot and I'm not in the Navy or the Air Force. So basically it was a dream that you could only dream about but probably never accomplish. Um, nothing's impossible, but some things are more difficult than others. And yet here you are a week away from actually living that dream. That's, um, you know, for those of you watching, um, I'd actually read that morning on TechCrunch or something. I, I do an hour of reading every morning before I leave for the office. And uh, I saw TechCrunch and I did a double take because I recognized Chris's name and he hadn't mentioned it to me. And, and he, I can't remember if he texted me or called me like, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes after I read it. He goes, hey, guess what? I'm going up to space. And I went, yeah, I know. Um, but it, it's, I, I'm probably right up there with your, your mom as far as my level of enthusiasm for you because I know how much this means to you and how long you've wanted it. And I'm a guy who, as a kid, had the dream and you get to live it. So I'm really, really genuinely happy for you and just thrilled. So, Michael, the, uh, the Stephen Fry song ends with a question, which is, would you go? Yes. Um, I would. Um, you know, you and I talked a, a bit about this the other day. You, you mentioned something like, oh, at some point, you know, it, it'll be inexpensive. And, and again, yeah, there's a possibility you could go. Yes, I would because of my fascination with it. And I also thought about this uh, a little bit over the weekend as I was thinking about us doing the show, which is there's a certain risk involved. Um, I'm in my late 60s. I've accomplished so many things in my life that I wanted to do, um, and I've got really good life insurance. Uh, my kids are all grown, and so, you know, if something terrible happened in my pursuit of a lifelong dream, it wouldn't be the worst thing. It would be different than being, you know, a 30-year-old with a couple of small children at home. Um, so from that pragmatic perspective, I feel like I'm covered, and yes, I wish I was going with you on Tuesday. <laughs> Nice. Well, maybe on the next one. I'm, 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 I asked him if I could get a frequent flyer card. Uh, <laughs> so, so maybe we can do one together sometime, Michael. Great. Well, uh, also, can you upgrade to first? <laughs> well, actually, I've got a pretty good deal this time because the um, the capsule actually holds six people. Yeah. Um, but on this flight, there's only four, which is kind of like a special treat, um, you know, for the first real public flight. And yeah. um, so I kind of joked that this is the, the equivalent of Economy Plus on United. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have the extra legroom seating. Exactly. Um, and an extra bag of uh, M&Ms to throw at each other. Uh, are you guys allowed to, like, nibble on anything or drink anything while you're up there? I uh, don't know about drinking. Um, you would hate to, like, short-circuit the computer. Um, right. But... Um, I think we, you know, I, I remember watching the video from Jeff Bezos when he flew, and I think they're throwing Skittles at, at each other um, just to catch them in zero gravity, which would be fun. Um, so I might try that. And, but I, it's funny, I got a little um, bag that I could carry some stuff up in, and one of the instructions said, no cookies or anything that can generate crumbs. So I oh, don't think they'll let me eat a pastrami sandwich up there. <laughs> um, so... In the old days, uh, astronauts would undergo very heavy training, you know, the centrifugal force thing and um, work, doing all the underwater stuff. Um, I'm assuming that you didn't have to go through any of that. Maybe you did, and I'm just unaware of it. Um, and also by the fact that William Shatner is going up. And let's face it, I mean, no offense to Bill Shatner intended at all, but he's 90 years old, and he's probably not in slim trim you know astronaut shape um so is health an issue or fitness an issue did they you know say we'd like you to go can we like send you to a doctor and tell you if you're good to fly any of that going on well they um 
they they sort of outsourced that. So they said that each astronaut should go see their own physician and their fa- whoever their family doctor is and, and, and get an assessment, um, which I didn't do. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't say that but, publicly before you go, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's not without its risks. But, you know, I think one of the big differences between like orbital spaceflight and this one is if you're in on the space station for a year and you get appendicitis or you have heart trouble right there's not a lot they can do and so it's really the fitness thing is about reducing the odds that something goes wrong while you're up there for that long and so on this short trip yeah it's not super easy i think we pull about three to four g's on the way up and about four to five g's on the way back and I also hear the vibration and the noise is crazy. I'm about to find out because I have a simulator we're going to get in on the weekend and dry. Um, nice. But I think, I think they basically just most of the training is about not freaking out when you're surrounded by events you've never experienced before. The noise, the vibration, the shock, the acceleration. It's probably a lot to take in, and I think that's mostly what we're training. Mm-hmm. Um and then, you know, basic things, you know, like, you know, are you happy to sit in an exit row in the case of an emergency? Are you willing and able to assist? <laughs> you can tell how many planes I've taken in my life. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, so, it's, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, but but the, the fun thing I did was flying, as you, you have on the video, the picture up of me in zero G. That was fun because the weightlessness portion on this suborbital flight is not that long, and I didn't want to spend it just doing flips and acrobatics and forgetting to look out of the window right so to get that out of my system i flew on the zero g plane um sometimes affectionately known as the vomit comet uh and uh there were a few moments of green i have to admit um but uh yeah we got to fly my girlfriend and i, I took her as a treat so that she could experience some of the, the stuff i will be experiencing and we floated around and just played some instruments and bounced around on the walls that was a lot of fun wow that's like Better than the Mile High Club. <laughs> uh, dead silence. On the other hand. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? Oh, oh, I said <laughs> way better than the Mile High Club. A lot of guys, you know, because you mentioned you had your girlfriend with you. It's like how many people, how many couples get to go up in zero G? Anyway, uh, I've got the picture of you uh, trying to lap up little floating globules of water uh, while you're up there. And I guess they don't worry so much on the vomit comet if water or crumbs go somewhere because, you know, the the pilot is sitting at the front of the plane. Your water droplets aren't going to short out any instrumentation, just get the floor wet. Um, you mentioned the other day when we were talking that the downside, the Gs you experienced on the downside were quite crushing. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, the plane basically follows like a, a curve, kind of like a roller coaster or, a, you know, a set, you know, you know, when you're in a car and you go over like sometimes wavy bumps in the road, you get that little weightlessness feeling, that little right. lurch. So the plane flies like that, except at 30,000 feet. So they go up and they just pull the plane up as hard as they can. And then they just flip it over and point it nose down and turn it off, basically. And so you're in this 727-size plane, I think it is a 727, and you're just falling out of the sky. And that's fun, that's the weightlessness part. Actually, it doesn't feel weird at all. It's not nothing strange about it. As soon as you get zero gravity, you just float off the floor of the plane and everything's great. But then you get punished on the bottom because then the plane, obviously, they have to pull out again, level out, and go back up for the next um, parabola. And at the bottom of that curve, you know, you're pulling two, two and a half Gs, and it's funny, I've never experienced that before, but you're laying on the ground and you can't even lift your leg, just a doubling of gravity. Wow. And your leg legs feel like they're made out of lead. You're just trying to like pull your leg off the ground and lift it up and it's almost impossible to do. Um, so when you go up on the New Shepherd, are, are you allowed to undo your seatbelt and get out of your seat or do you have to stay buckled in the whole time? No, no, that's the whole uh, that's the whole fun of it. Actually, I just posted a video on Twitter today that was from Jeff's flight, um, and uh, you know they're floating around and doing all kinds of fun stuff. Um, so yeah, I think part of the training too is, by the way, it's a five point seatbelt harness, kind of like a racing harness. Um, cause they don't want you to move around at all. But part of the training is when the four or five minutes is up and they send you the message to get back into your seat, you've got to get back into your seat and get buckled up really quickly. Um, because then you'll 
be descending back through the atmosphere and, and things get pretty rough. So if you're not in the seat, you're going to have a pretty rough time back to Earth. Does the capsule have a heat shield on it and go through that sort of re-entry heat issue that uh, like a NASA capsule has gone through? There's definitely some heating, but it's it's not as bad as what you see, you know, for a, like an Apollo type capsule or, a, or the Dragon capsule because the big difference between orbital and suborbital flight is actually most rockets that go to orbit actually fly sideways. If you look at any photo, especially the night, like if someone takes like a really cool long exposure night photo of a rocket takeoff, it's yeah. an arc going sideways. And that's because mostly you need to add, um, sorry, in kilometers, something like seven kilometers a second of horizontal velocity. What is that? It's like um, four or five miles per second of horizontal speed. Okay. That's what puts you in orbit, not the height. Oh, and interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you, because it, it's, imagine, you know, if you're throwing a stone horizontally, the question is how fast do you need to throw the stone so it never hits the ground? And the magic number is seven kilometers a second. Um, so, yeah, um, where most of that heat comes from is when you come back through the atmosphere, you've got to use the atmosphere as a brake to ditch all of that velocity. And um, we don't need to do that. So the heating is pretty mild. Well, that's good because um, obviously that's a you know a big portion of the risk in spaceflight. I think is the reentry. So good to know that that's been minimized on this trip. Um, and it's funny, uh, Chris and I spoke right before we went live today, and for some reason I I was imagining that Blue Origin was actually the the Virgin ship, which is a, kind of an airplane under an airplane. But no, he's sitting on top of basically a giant stick of dynamite in a tin can. So. Uh, exciting and scary at the same time um explain to everybody watching i i didn't know that there was a name for this but i i knew that there was a a thing it's called the carmen line tell everybody what the carmen line actually is yeah i mean it's it's a little bit controversial but it's it's, a, it's like where is this edge of space and the true answer is there's no real edge because the atmosphere actually goes up really far like hundreds of miles up there's still parts of our atmosphere there very thin but still there so the edge of space is soft but if you needed a line to say you're in space or not in space um the line is basically where airplanes stop working and things you know you know newton's law and object in motion will uh, you know will remain in motion unless acted on by an external force on the in our atmosphere that's not well the external force is the wind right so um, on the ground, the wind, the air pressure will slow something down. And so at the Kármán line, which is 60 miles or about 100 kilometers, it's about a break-even point where airplanes definitely stop working and lift on wings doesn't work anymore. And things that get a push keep moving forever. Um, wow. Because there's not enough atmosphere up there to really slow things down. And so that's a good enough definition of space where the atmosphere is not doing anything anymore. Um, do you get to meet Jeff Bezos? Will he be there? Um, I think I will, yeah. Um, rumor has it he's going to come out and greet us when we land back on the ground. So looking forward to being welcomed back to Earth by the man can who helped eject me from it. <laughs> can you do me a favor and tell him that I got a, a new desktop computer the other day and the packaging was just horrible? <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I can just do a return for you. I'll bring it with, with me and there you uh, go. To, to process a return on the spot. <laughs> um, so if you had to go to if you had the chance to go on an orbital flight someday and stay up there for days or maybe even weeks, what experiments would you be most interested in conducting in space? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would definitely go. And I think the thing that I'm interested in doing next is is building a, a bigger space station, one that we can all visit. By the way, just today, um, uh, a Russian team launched off from Kazakhstan and just docked of the space station, as we've been talking, carrying nice. a film crew, including a Russian actress. So they are filming the first feature film actually in space and not in a green screen room. Um, wow. It's just mind-blowing. Now, Tom Cruise is also apparently launching the space this year, but he got beaten by the Russians. So it's almost like we're back in a, <laughs> in in a 60s, repeat right? <laughs> of, in the space race again. Um, wow. 
but yeah, so that's a really cool thing to do in space. Um, and I, you know, I just, you know, part of my vision for um, space is that it stops being a strange and inaccessible place, but just becomes another one of the locations which the human race does cool things. Um, pretty fascinating. I mean, when you look at the the speed, you know, not so much NASA, you're right, uh, old school, they did move slowly and carefully all those years, but since uh, privatized companies uh, or private companies have taken over some aspects of space travel, many of them, um, the speed at which things have moved has been much faster. So I guess it's really not improbable that in our lifetimes, your, your dream of having a bigger space station uh, there's actually a Disney movie um, or a Disney TV show. I can't remember the name of, but my daughters used to watch it when they were kids. And it's about a bunch of Earthlings living, uh, I believe, not on a planet, but in a giant space station. And, and that show, as goofy and kind of you know tween-oriented as it was, made you really think about it, and it, it did seem conceivable. So I hope that's a dream that comes true. Um, it's like the Jetsons, right? Yeah. I mean, and who doesn't love the Jetsons? And by the way, with Tom Tom Cruise going into space, um, can you imagine how much South Park will have fun with that? Did you ever see the Tom Cruise episode? I did. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have a great uh, great time with that. Um, do you get any cool swag from, from Blue Origin? I did get like a whole... Um you know, a bunch of hats and t-shirts and stuff, but probably the coolest thing was a rocket model, which I was hoping I could show everyone today. Um, but yeah, this really cool scale model of, of the, uh, the rocket. So that's pretty nice. I'm going to send that segment of today's show to the CEO of Wirecast and go, look what you people have done. I, you know, all I've got is a United jet that they gave me when I became a million miler, not as cool as having, you know, one of 10 blue origin models. Um, so yeah, we we're talking about space tourism a bit, um, and I know that to, you know that Jeff Bezos is very much behind it. What do you think the timeline will be before either average citizens like myself who aren't as space oriented as you are, and you know, I mean, it really wasn't your connect. You didn't have connections so much as just you know, being persistent that got you up there. When will Michael Lasko be able to buy a ticket at a price I can afford to go on Blue Origin or some other spacecraft? Uh, I think three years. Um, wow. Yeah. It's kind of like, imagine you were going to the opening night of a show, right? You know, the first concert of a tour and it's the first night and all the celebrities are there tickets are expensive and that's just exactly where we're at i mean a lot of people say this is just joy rides for billionaires and it is it's the first couple of people going you know can afford to go to opening night um that was jeff and you know his brother mark and and uh, their guests last time right so i think where we're, what we're seeing now is just things are going to get cheaper and uh, yeah i think three ish i'm guessing vaguely but you know it'll get a little cheaper each year so maybe three years from now it'll be something you could afford should I get on the list now and hope that I can afford it when they call me? <laughs> that is a good idea because you don't want to find out that then the waiting list is 10 years long. <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially because, you know, three years from now, I'll be 70 years old. So if it's 10 years long, well, Bill Shatner's going at 90. There you go. Um, I, I would love to be there for the training part, uh, like Bill Bill trying to get out of the five-point seatbelt, um, just stuff i don't know he, he, he's like i told you when i recorded him for voiceovers he's a very kind gentleman-like guy with a very sardonic sense of humor so there must have been a lot of good chuckles between him and the doctor or him and whoever was training him um i think i've covered everything else um on my list or maybe not no, I have. So let me take some questions from the audience. We've got 11 minutes left, and I've kind of monopolized this. I'm sure they've probably got some questions. So audience folks, um, if you've got questions for Chris, just type the word question in all caps. And that way I'll be able to see them. It'll take like 20 seconds because there is a little delay. <laughs> we'll be able to soon book space travel through Amazon. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so Marion is telling me there are questions in the chat. All right, I'm scrolling backwards, gang, to try and find them. I'm not seeing any questions. All right, redo those questions, you guys. There we go. Um, will you take a traveler guitar and play for us in space? Oh, that is a good idea. I'm actually trying to find the smallest instrument I can um, bring up. Um, right now, I've I've um, I've settled on, on an ocarina, but that might irritate everyone else. Um, how about a, a kalimba? Yeah, that would be cool, actually. Kalimba's a good one. That's a great yeah. idea. They're tiny and they're not annoying and they've got no moving parts that could fly off and short out a computer. Um, let's see. That's a great uh, idea. Somebody wants to know where you got the audio waveform socks that are in the picture with you and the vomit comment. Oh, those um, actually are space socks. Um, so when I was up in, um, in Bellingham, doing this recording for Stephen Fry. Um, we actually just had a really, it was like a magic trip. You know, uh, I've, I've been you know, to many of your, your um, taxi road rallies when you interview people, you know, you're like Ken Calais talking about, you know, recording Fleetwood Mac and like the magic in the studio. Right. There was a point where Bill and I just looked at each other and we're like, this is actually really special. Like once Stephen Fry agreed to do the voiceover and he sent us the audio and we, you know, I almost like just was my tearing up just hearing the first listen of it. I'm like, oh my God, it's so perfect. And, we just, I think, bottled some real magic that day, and I think you know it when it happens. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, th these were gifts from Bill's partner, these socks, and they're actually space-themed socks. Um, and so the bottom, what looks like an audio waveform, is actually a reflection in the lake, and the top part of the socks is skies and, and, ah. and stars and constellations. Um, so it's like a little, uh, little memento from my time up there. Um, Bellingham made actually made in Bellingham these socks. Nice. Um, so um, a nice little kind of cap, you know, little cap off of the trip. A nice way to round out that trip up there. And I love the lovely time I had up there doing the recordings. Somebody's asking. Paul House is asking. How long is the actual trip? Yeah. So um, this rocket is like very very fast. Um, you know, we do we pull about four or five G. Let's say maybe three to four again. I forget the exact number. Uh, three to four on the way up. Um, so I think that means we get to like probably 2,000 or 3,000 miles per hour. Um, so we get to space pretty quickly. Um, so I think it's about five minutes up and then about five minutes of weightlessness and then another five down. So I think the whole thing is between 12 and 15 minutes, pretty damn quick. And do you land in water? No, we actually land in the desert. Uh, so the launch site is in Texas. And depending on the wind, we land usually pretty close back to where we took off from. Um, is there any control when the chutes deploy, or is it the wind just takes you where where it will? Yeah, pretty much the wind takes control there. Um, but I think they have a, a pretty good sized uh, landing area for us, and uh, there is no danger of us like blowing onto a power line or anything like that. Um, yeah, and then the cool thing is actually they have these little retro rockets that they call air cushions. So as the parachute, we parachute down to the ground, and then in the last few feet, these little rocket motors turn on and uh, just soften our landing a little bit, which is kind of cool. That's very yeah, cool. Land, landing <laughs> on the land. I bet all the Russian cosmonauts that have landed in Kazakhstan over the years wish they had those. I've seen a couple of videos of them landing. I, I don't remember seeing any... Um, I always thought, boy, what a great way to snap your neck, but uh, maybe they had them and I just didn't see them. Um, okay, I'm looking for other questions here. Somebody wants to know the actual name of the spacecraft? Ah, oh, it does have a name, I think. But I, It's the New Shepard, right? I think well, I the saw new, that. The, the, the rocket is called New Shepard. Ah, okay. That is the name of the whole rocket, and... Um, and then uh, I recall seeing a picture somewhere of a name printed over the hatch, um, but I don't recall what it is. I think the capsule has a name. Um, it's like uh, one of those inspiring names, like um, uh, like Infinity or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll right. look it up. Yeah, to infinity and called, beyond. 
the mission is called the very exciting space industry speak of like NS18. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just saw a question go by and now I've lost it. Oh, can't find it. Um, all right. Well, we've got time for a couple more questions, and we got to wrap this up. Anybody else want to chime in here? <laughs> Peter Rahill says, "Where is it noted on the capsule? Opened other end." Very funny, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and Poppy Paul, I'm not going to address your question because fart jokes aren't always funny. Um, do you guys wear pressurized suits? Um, no, I think they're um, they're designed to help you with the g-forces, but the cabin is pressurized, and um, that's one of the risk areas. Obviously, is you know if the window breaks, um, we have to hold our breath for quite a while. Yeah, <laughs> quite a while. <laughs> um, Robin Sandoval wants to know, can you bring your phone and take pictures? Well, Robin, I'm going to answer part of that, which is if you're going to space, you're really going to take those shots with your phone? But go ahead and give her the real answer, Chris. Um, so they recommend we don't bring a phone because it's easy to get distracted. And the one thing that this flight gives you that that you don't get anywhere else is the view. You, you know, you're really high up at 100 kilometers. And it would be a waste. I remember I went to a David Bowie concert once in Sydney just before he had a heart attack and stopped touring. He goes on the, the reality tour. And I had front row tickets center. And I brought a, snuck in a camera and I decided to take a bunch of photos. And at some point, I re realized I'd missed three David Bowie songs. Wow. Because I was messing around with my camera. And I'm like, what a shame. So I'm absolutely not bringing my own camera on this because I'm, you know, I'll just, you know, if I get the settings wrong, I'll be like, oh my god, oh my god, I gotta fix the camera. Um, <laughs> but they luckily have a lot of um, cameras in the capsule pointing in and out, so the whole thing will be recorded, you know, every way to Sunday. So I'll be fine. I did find the name of the spaceship, by the way. It is what I I, I thought I had it right. So it's actually called the RSS First Step, and I think the RSS stands for Reusable Spaceship. And the first step speaks to um, that this is the beginning of, of a whole journey, um, and this is the first step. It's very cool. Um, do you think uh, when you've reached the top of the parabola and you're coming back, that they'll say, put your seat backs and tray tables in the upright position? <laughs> Pretty much, because, yeah, and, and, you know, stow your M&Ms because they're going to hurt when they hit you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how long did you say it takes to come back down? Like four minutes or something? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I'm just looking at the flight profile here, the actual landing phase. Um, but, you know, might vaguely recall it being four to five minutes per phase. So going up, hanging out, and then coming back. I wonder what Jeff Bezos' uh, lawyers and insurance people thought of him going up. I mean, he is currently the wealthiest man on the planet, I believe. Um, well, there might have been a reason why he stepped down as CEO of Amazon, because I don't know if any um, you know, corporate board would, would have be able to afford the insurance policy for their, um, their, their CEO and, and lead board member flying to space. So <laughs> there might have been, or it might have been, that might be coincidental or it might be related. I personally thought of that and don't think it was coincidental at all. Um, I mean, it was like, two or three weeks before he flew, if I remember correctly. And I remember hearing that and going, oh, pretty obvious why he's stepping down. Um, all right, well, let's wrap this up. Um, again, my sincere apologies. I so badly uh, you know, wanted to see your face while we're doing this, want everybody else to see your face. Um, really want to see the model. But unfortunately, uh, for whatever reason, Wirecast decided, I, I literally just used this yesterday and I don't know why, but they changed something so um but great interview um man i'm you know i've always liked you and been impressed with you and uh, i mean for somebody who's as smart as nerdy as you are and i mean that in the kindest possible way um you're a very regular guy and i kind of feel like you're representing all of us regular guys by doing this so 
have a safe trip, have a safe flight, um, enjoy every minute of it, relish the experience, and I'm sure that you will appreciate the fact that you're part of a very, very, very small club of people. Well, hopefully um, a growing club. So uh, let's uh, let's get you up there and uh, you know try and do something. Maybe do a you know play a band, play play a song in space together. That'd be really fun. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, carve my initials on the wall so that they I know where my seat is, and uh, I will talk to you when you get home. Uh, we should do a post-flight interview, but I'm pretty sure you'll be doing those with. Uh, bigger entities than taxi tv but i do want to get you back on the show to hear all about it all right that would be wonderful thanks michael thanks for having me and uh thanks everyone for listening uh thanks for joining us chris take care and safe safe travels thanks bye bye bye